to it this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, all who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and the cover of the Ark of the Testimony with it. And then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue and shall put it in, in its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls and the flagons of the drink offering. The regular showbread also shall be on it. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goat skin and shall put in its poles. And they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, its tongs, its trays, and all the vessels for oil with which it is supplied. And they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of goat skin and put it on the carrying frame. And over the golden altar, they shall spread a cloth of blue and cover it with a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. And they shall take all the vessels of the service that are used in the sanctuary and put them in a cloth of blue and cover them with a covering of goatskin and put them on the carrying frame. And they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. And they shall put on it all the utensils of the altar, which are used for the service there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, and the basins, all the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread on it a covering of goatskin and shall put in its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after the sons of Koath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy thing lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting the sons of Kohath are to carry. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrance incense, the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that is in it of the sanctuary and its vessels. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their father's houses and by their clans from 30 years old up to 50 years old. You shall list them all who can come to do duty, to do service in the tent of meeting. And this is the service of the clans of the Gershonites in serving and bearing burdens. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle in the tent of meeting with its coverings and the covering of goatskin that is on top of it and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting and the hangings of the court and the screen for the entrance of the gate of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords and all the equipment for their service and they shall do all that needs to be done with regard to them. All the service of the sons of the Gershonites shall 
be at the command of Aaron and his sons in all that they are to carry and in all that they have to do. You shall assign to their charge all that they are to carry. This is the service of the clans of the sons of the Gershonites in the tent of meeting. And their guard duty is to be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. As for the sons of Merari, you shall list them by their clans and their father's houses. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, you shall list them, everyone who can come on duty to do the service of the tent of meeting. And this is what they are charged to carry as the whole of their service in the tent of meeting, the frames of the tabernacle with its bars, pillars, and bases, and the pillars around the court with their bases, pegs, and cords, with all their equipment and all their accessories, and you shall list by name the objects that they are required to carry, This is the service of the clan of the sons of Merari, the whole of their service in the tent of meeting under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So good and holy God, we thank you for your word. Um, Help us this morning as we look at a list of tasks, of the jobs of the Levites, that we might see the truth that you would have for us and even your call on us to labor, to do work in light of who Christ is. Um, Lord, we just demand and ask that you would alone be glorified in this place this morning, Jesus. We have nothing without you or apart from you. We want to lift your name high and live in light of who you are and what you've done for us. Help us to see that and to be transformed by that truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So we labor from the finished work of Jesus for his glory and the good of the world. As Christians, as believers, as the church, as kingdom citizens, we live from the finished work of Jesus, and we labor, we work for his glory and the good of the world. Some of you know this about me, but I have had a lot of jobs. I'm only 45, but I've clocked in and out of more jobs than most people and more than I honestly can remember. And I tried to remember as many of them I could um, this week. And my kids have even taken to saying it's easier just to ask me where I have not worked than if I've worked somewhere. So here's an inventory of what I can remember of places I've worked. And if I miss something, just shout it out and remind me um, if you know me well enough. But started off as a garden center hand. I worked for my brother's lawn mowing company. I was a grocery store cart mover and eventually got promoted to dairy stocker, right? I've worked at two different telemarketing firms at one of them as a manager. So leadership came early for me, evidently. I worked as a hotel front desk clerk, and talk about a nice hotel, it was Super 8. Um, I was a bank teller in college, and I got robbed at gunpoint. Great job. I worked at McDonald's and quit McDonald's to go work at Burger King. I worked for Marshalls, uh, so that's why I always wear used threads and cheap threads, right? I worked for our university's outrigger, so I'd rent out canoes and kayaks and tent stuff. I was a radio station DJ and a morning show stuntman, so the idiot on the morning show, that came naturally. I was a dance club DJ, so that's why I demand we drop a sick beat after all of the sermons. Um, I was a bar bouncer, 
So I checked IDs and let people in and threw people out when they needed to be. I was a security guard in law school. Uh, I was a law library clerk. I was a paper boy going way back. I was a reporter for our college newspaper. I was a law office runner. I was a server at an upscale restaurant. I was the regional director for the Ohio Republican Party. I tried to sell plasma once and they didn't take it. I was a special assistant for communications, an assistant press secretary, a deputy press secretary, and you see where this is going, and a press secretary, and then I was a communications director, an assistant to professors in the missiological department of my seminary. I was an associate pastor, and fully and finally and forever and nothing more, and pastor of Reservoir Church, and anything new that comes along with that. Right? Amen. Right, yeah. We're not, I'm not updating a resume ever again, I promise, because it's already 16 pages, right? It, the funny thing is that we, we look at this list and we think of identity, and as we often mention at Reservoir Church, vocation is not meant to be our source of identity. You are not what you do, and if so much of my life would have been um, focused on that and having an identity, I clearly would have not had a clear picture of who I was because I kept moving from job to job. But while it's not our identity, we do in fact work. And Carrie always tells me that I just work a bunch of half days, but I still work, right? And you work and we're called to work because work is good It's actually part of the design of who we are and who we're meant to be before God and with each other. But sin obviously has made it toil. But under the debris of anxiety and discontentment and economic systems, there is something that is meaningful to work. Stuff that actually plays into our relationship with God, into life in his kingdom, and it plays a part in the good of the world. The truth is that the Christian works differently. We approach life differently. And from the description of the Levites' jobs, that the tasks that they had, we are spurred on to think of our work in three different spheres. And they're equal spheres, even though they may not be equal on this whiteboard, right? But we labor from the finished work of Jesus for his glory and for the good of the world. We start with life with God. And so we have our first sphere, life with God, if you're a note taker. And this is the vital one. This is where it all starts. This is the foundation. This is all of numbers. This is the story of the relationship with God. And reading from our text today essentially generates for us what I think are two questions that we have to answer. What do we make of work and labor in light of who God is in our relationship with him, the tasks that we actually have before us? And then a second question of God, of our interacting with him, doing the things necessary to mediate a relationship between us as humans and our creator. And in both of those questions, I think we're helped realizing that it's what we are meant for, both work and relationship with God. 
Is from creation, we are given as humanity essentially a mandate to work. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as some will say, the creation mandate is this ongoing charge to humanity in the power and blessing of God to be fruitful, multiply, and to fill the earth and to gently subdue and cultivate the earth. That's what we're called to do. And we see it in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So there's an authority given to us in light of who we are and what we're supposed to do as workers in relationship with God. And it was beautiful, that picture of the garden. And some people always ask me, it's cold, so I'm, I'm wearing a flannel instead of a, a flowery or Hawaiian shirt. Why do you wear Hawaiian shirts all the time? It's like, because I want them to have flowers on it as a reminder that we're headed back to the garden. And that's what we're meant for, and that's where we're going again. And in this picture of creation relating to God was a walk in the coolness of the day after the work was done. <coughs> It's modeled by God himself, right? And it's an inherited thing in us as image bearers that we are actually made to create, to order things, to subdue in the best sense of the word. All of humanity at this moment, we are living longing for this presence again, to walk with God in the coolness of the day, the imminence, the nearness of God, to have that again. And we run in all kinds of wrong places for that experience. We do it in our work. We do it in our rest. And we rarely can articulate that we have this longing, but it drives so much of life. And from that creation, we have to recognize that, you guys, you are special. There is no other creature that has this type of communing with their creator, with God. He did not walk with the elephants and the lizards or the alligators or whatever other created thing. He probably walked with dogs. That's why they're so sweet, right? We are, and you just think of it this way. We are the only animals that cook their food. Right? Isn't that just astounding? Like, even if you believe in evolution, no one else evolved to cook their food. And more than just providing flame for the bounty that we've hunted and captured, we actually add flavors. We get creative and we get it right occasionally. And when we do, it's a beautiful thing. I had some chili dogs that were so good. But Wiener Schnitzel chili dogs, be warned, has onions in them. It was not pleasant after I ate them. But the flavor as I was eating, it's like, oh, this is so amazing. And there's far better food. Kenny roasted some meat for the guys last night, cooked burgers. It was delicious. The Hardesty's brought flaming hot Cheetos, all kinds of flavor that's delicious, right? And it's a beautiful thing, a brilliant reflection of our image bearing. So the next time you're cooking a meal, be like, huh, I'm like God. Make something a little better than you typically do, right? But this is an image that we've actually tainted as humans. Because from the mandate in the garden to create, to multiply, to subdue appropriately, our first parents believed a lie and created in that instance disobedience, poisoning the bloodstream of all of humanity. 
So relationship is spoiled. And by Genesis 3, we see this interaction with God is broken. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he heard, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? You know how the story unfolds. It it brings the curse of toil to our work. And God says to the woman in Genesis 3:16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but you shall but he shall rule over you. And then he talks to Adam and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So because of that, nothing is as it is supposed to be now. There is toil, there is sweat, there is pain in bringing life. And the story continues, and eventually God will choose Israel. He'll see Abram and make a pact with him and give a covenant and create this nation as an outpost that is just meant to show the world what life with God actually looks like. Picture back to the garden. And this wandering is part of that presentation. And labor, work, is actually part of the story that we see unfolding through the book of Numbers. One scholar says, Numbers pays careful attention to the priest's work of mediating God's presence, not because religious work is the most important occupation, but because God is the center point of every occupation. And we see their work. We heard it. Aaron and his sons have care of the holy things. When the camp moves, they are to elaborately cover them so they can't be seen or touched. And the Kohathites carry the items once they are Covered, and that's the longest description, care for these most holy things. And then the Gershonites take the curtains and the covering of the tabernacle of the tent, and the Merari come up behind, and they take the sticks and the structure of the tabernacle. That's how they move out. But we have to recognize this is not careless work. We saw it in verse 15, and when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Koash shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And then a few verses later in verse 18, Let not the tribe or the clan of the Kohathites be destroyed among the Levites, but deal with them. Or thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. But they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. 
So only the priests could see and touch the holy things and their items that are most representative of God's presence. And anyone else who touches them or sees them showed great disrespect for the Lord's holiness and would die. We've talked a fair bit about the holiness of God just because we've encountered it here in Numbers and we keep talking about it because it's vitally important in this life with God that we recognize who the holy God is. This last week, we started watching the Indiana Jones franchise. And was it last Friday, we watched Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? Was it two weeks ago? I'm getting older. They had fly by. Now, while there is some seriously suspect biblical interpretation in that movie, right? The bad guys die because what? They look upon the ark. Power comes out of the ark, and Indy just says, close your eyes, don't look, right? And they melt, their faces melt. And we thought, the kids will be scared, and the kids just laughed at the graphics, <laughs> right? But it's this picture, and we, we kind of recognize it as humans, and even Hollywood is recognizing it to a point that God is holy, and because of the fall, relating to him is now serious business. There's wrath to be accounted for when we enter into the presence of this holy God. One writer says, The God of the Bible is thus radically different from the God of our culture or of our imaginations. He's not tame, not even necessarily safe, if by safe we mean that he will always work things out in ways that make sense to our wisdom. Though he dwells in the midst of his people, his holiness is always threatening to break out and consume the unholy people who are all around him. And for the priests here, it's again, just like the garden, a call to obedience. Take care of these things in this appropriate way, lest you die. And I don't want us to get a wrong picture of the wrath against sin from a holy God. And I appreciated Jeremy Treat. He's a pastor in L.A., an author. And he says, we must understand that wrath is not an attribute of God. The God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is not wrath. God's wrath is the rightful expression of his holy love in the face of sin and evil. Before the foundations of the earth, the triune God had perfect love, joy, holiness, and peace. There was no wrath because there was no sin. God's wrath arises from his holy love in opposition to wickedness. So wrath only exists where sin exists. It's what we bring to this relationship. I almost called this sermon in my study this week, why so serious, right? Because this is serious stuff, the order of the work, being cautious before a holy God. And life with God is a serious endeavor. And we should have a humble posture before him, recognizing his holiness. I heard John Piper mention this week uh, of an experience of preaching at a conference and being immediately followed at the conference by an attempt to break the Guinness World uh, Record for the most or the highest number of people sitting on whoopee cushions at the same time. So John Piper, you know who John Piper is. He's preaching on the glory of God and then, right? It's hilarious, but 
sad, right? Because And here's the thing. We're, we're Reservoir Church. I tell the worst jokes. And you occasionally laugh at them. Right? And we have fun. But we live rightly um, kind of reverent before the creator of the universe. We don't take his holiness for granted and discard it. Or mistreat it. We recognize that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Yet he has created us in his image. So we are able to know something of who he is by how we are. We hear this story and the cautiousness in numbers. And then we think, well, what does this mean for us now? And here's the really good news. We no longer live in the fear of igniting wrath because of the redemption that we've experienced in Christ. Because in Jesus, the transcendent holy God took into himself the death that we deserve for our sins. He solved the problem of wrath. He solved the problem of our wickedness, of our sin, our disobedience. And Christ's purpose in coming was so that we too might live and not die when we approach the most holy things. Praise God for that. Like, rejoice. The whoopee cushion Christians aren't going to be cast out because Jesus came for them. Maybe that's, that's taking it too far. Maybe. But it's what the work of the Levites eventually point to. The perfect priest, as we talked about last week. And the Levites' high and holy calling was accomplished profoundly by Christ who came to serve and whose food was to do the will of the Father. And in his service to God, Christ acts as our substitute, fulfilling righteous obedience to the law and becoming our atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross. Glorious good news. Now you can stand blameless in the presence of this holy God. So you're no longer in danger of death in his presence. And oppositely, you are given life in him. It's good. But even though we have that truth, the truth still stands that work doesn't end. We don't just enter into some blissful floating now. We keep going, keep creating and doing things, working that looks vastly different than the world because our purpose is different. And it starts with working for the life of the church. It's our second sphere. This is where I tell you to sign up for children's ministry. Right? When we belong to Christ, we belong to his body, the church. And a flourishing life is actually found when we dive deeply into life in the local church. Now, I know, you guys, we are a church full of church refugees, people that have been in toxic, unhealthy, um, bad churches before. I've been around some myself, but the model of life that we see through the New Testament, we can't reject the church because there's some bad ones. It's what the kingdom looks like that Christ has called us to. So we take steps to make sure we don't become toxic. We have elder accountability, mutual submission, and really strong people in all of you that speak up for each other. The truth is that the church is a reflection of the kingdom, a collection of different people brought together for purpose to show the world what life with God looks like. Just like Israel in the wilderness. 
See Paul writing to the Corinthian church, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we have all baptized into one body, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So we're all brought together and we have a role. Each member or part of the body has a role to play. So we did you notice the title of the sermon, Slow Your Roll, Know Your Role? It's very clever. Play on words. So because God is holy, we slow our role. We recognize we need redemption. And then we know our role in these next two spheres. And it starts with, we are a member of the body of Christ, meant to be part of the local church. In all ages, all backgrounds, all experience levels get to play. And we are united as One body. It's how the kingdom works, how the spirit works among us. And we live in a culture where modern attitudes essentially just promote jumping from body to body until you find a suitable host. Right? It's almost parasitic in the way we approach church. And essentially we live not as members of the body, but as zits on the church rather than members of it, getting just pussy enough before we explode and go to another one. Disgusting, isn't it? I'm trying to... Say it is. Don't be a zit. Be a finger. I don't know. That pops it. Don't pop the zits. Not every illustration works. Yeah, okay. We'll send that one back. But you're, you're meant to be part, like wedded in, functioning together, joints and marrow, however else we're put together. Right? And Jesus is the water that makes up your body. Keeps us all together. And that's, that's why we use family language at Reservoir. Because it's significant. We are part of each other. Committed. Working side by side for the glory of Christ. Because we're in it together. The Levites work in this description. All of it complemented each other's work. Making each family essential. And you can take up the curtains, but the structure won't move itself. So you have to have somebody else to do that labor and that work. And they all work together, just as we're called to. In the exact same way, we don't just have producers and consumers in the church. And there may be some environments they try to convince you of that because they want you to just buy in rather than be part. But we are all gifted by God to be part of the church. And Paul will say, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, for the health of the body, for the forward motion of the body. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, Let it not be forgotten then that our Lord Jesus Christ, the great head of the church, calls out all his redeemed to his service, and that he lays on each one a burden which no one else can carry. Each one throughout life must be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. And they have to do it together in the church for the life of the church. This is where we exist, holding each other up, being held, singing to one another, teaching kids, brewing strong coffee. That was a, that's a leading example. I like strong coffee. 
right? Setting up the elements for service, praying for one another, being there for each other in the midst of difficulty in the week. One commentator says the Levites assist all people in bringing their life and work into line with God's law and purposes. Moreover, the work performed by the Levites in the tent is quite similar to the work of most Israelites. Breaking, moving, and setting up camp, kindling fire, washing linens, butchering animals, and processing grain. The emphasis then is on the integration of the Levites' work with everyone else's. That we all play into the work of the body. In all of these things, it's ministry that is unfolding. It's the keeping of the tent that we see from the Levites. And so we labor here because we've been brought in by the labor of another, because Jesus has created a family for us to belong to, a kingdom to be citizens of. And in this great description and conversation Jesus has with his disciples of when have we served you, Lord? You, you know that example in Matthew 25. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. It's the idea of caring for each other in the church. So we labor for the life of the church. The church is also where transformation is sparked in us. We're not meant to be off in the wild by ourselves. I like this quote from a pastor named Josh Loftus. When the local church is neglected, sanctification is neglected. It is vital that the Christian sees the link between these two and strives to make the local church central. For all our imperfections, for all that we miss of Jesus. He still designed us to be part of the church. Because of Christ, we are made part and given a part to play for his glory and for our good in the church. As Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It has purpose. It's for the life of the church. It's so the world will see what life with God looks like. So we have life with God living for the life of the church. And our work doesn't just stay within the tent. It actually goes out because it's supposed to. And we live and work for the life of the world. The AP says don't do this. And I need to do arrows because it goes out. See, when you draw, you forget. And this is like, this is horizontal arrows. We're taking care of each other. And this is the vertical with relationship with God. So what do, what do, you, what do I mean that we work for the life of the world? Aren't we just in opposition to the world? And that what we hear most often from our pulpits and the Levites work was on the move, right? They were to be taking new territory, advancing so the world would see the life with God. And they were imperfect. They were stumbling, but they always kept moving onward. So the church then is meant to be a place of equipping and sending rather than just an end to ourselves. We're not meant to be cloistered away from our culture, but we are meant to be on mission together in the midst of our culture. And that might take for us a little bit of reframing from how we live or see 
the gospel and live in response to it. And so we're going to do some reframing. Watch. Ooh, look at this. It flips. But I meant for that to be on top and I flipped it. But oh well, you, you can see it, right? So if we only see life with God in the life of the church is the only two important things, we might only hear two chapters of the gospel, right? That the humans have fallen and need redemption. And so we preach sin hard, you're going to hell, you better come to Jesus. And then we feel like, well, that's, that's the gospel, that's, that's, we're done, right? And maybe if, if we're good and we're hopeful enough, we add in a third chapter that would be like restoration. So this is um, heaven. This is seeing all your old dogs finally um, together in one place. And Bessie's there holding down your mansion for you. It's, it's, you're waiting for it, right? That's our hope of heaven. But that still is truncated and it's easy because I've got more blocks there, don't I? And you're like, what's, what's he going to put in those blocks? Right? When we see the story correctly, when we live in light of who Christ is, what our life with God and life in the church and now life for the world is meant to look like, the chapters broaden and we start with creation. That's where we started this morning, that you're created to be these culture makers, cultivating life, letting others see life with God. But there's also then renewal that the church works. This is the ongoing work of Jesus in the life of the world at this moment, bringing renewal to things that were dead, turning over what is broken and repairing it by his finished work. So as ambassadors of Christ, those doing kingdom work, we live for the renewal of others and all things. This is what we're supposed to be about. And so the church, the people that make up the church, exists now as a creative minority, a renewing presence in the life of the world. We're the ones mixing some flavors for others to savor, meeting needs of those that are without in our community, seeing the unseen around us, speaking for the voiceless in our cities, loving our neighbors well, even with our work. That our work might look different. And this is desperately needed in this moment. News reports of New Year's shootings. We see videos of senseless beatings. Think of hunger. We have war. We have a rampant anxiety. We have confusion over all things. We don't even call mummies mummies anymore because that's a monster. We call them mummified persons. We're just getting silly. So something needs to be renewed, remade in light of who Christ is, this perfection that he brings shining forth beauty for others to see and belong to him and this is christ working through culture through us to bring shalom his peace wherever we may be found and the truth is this is for all vocations do not hear me say that you all have to become pastors we already have one and our budget only affords one right I mean, if you feel called, we'll raise some money. Um, we'll, we'll make it happen. But you, no matter what your vocation, no matter what your resume says, you can be working redemption wherever you are. 
All of us working as unto God, as instruments of Christ wherever we are, bringing beauty, security, innovation that helps and care that actually heals those that are harmed. And here's the truth. You are not what you do, but you are meant to do something. And in Christ, we work for the life of the world and we do so differently than the world does. We don't just work to get more. We use what we have and how we labor to build his kingdom here. Remember having a conversation with, uh, we got a little book club talking about the economies of life. And one of the guys was interviewing for a job. He's like, what do I do? Do I just keep getting paid more so I can have a bigger house and do all these things? And I was like, that's not where the sauce is. That's not where the magic is. Like you provide for your family, but allow space to be used by the Lord. From a task list in numbers, we are freed now to dream of how the Lord will use our work. And some of us will be firmly settled that we earn and it's a resource to do other things. And that's a fine way of seeing the work that we are called to. But some of us will see it as working redemption in broken places. That our vocation is actually to do something profoundly redemptive wherever we all are. And all of it is like incarnating Jesus, moving in and blessing, bringing renewal. Because that's what he's done with us. He's renewed our hearts so that we can bring his renewing work to others. And so in the church, then we champion uniqueness and we get creative with how God will use us. Vastly different people, all with different ideas that the Lord will give us. And we can hold each other up and push each other into those good works. Love this Albert Einstein Quote, everybody is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life uh, believing that it's stupid. So we don't, we don't judge disciples by one thing alone that you're a sp- supposed to accomplish or some ladder that you're supposed to climb. You are uniquely gifted by the Lord and empowered by the Spirit to do what he has designed for you to do. And we get to rally around each other in our uniqueness and encourage us. And each of us has that unique gift that will be unleashed for the glory of Christ and for the good of the world. In all of our work, Our labor is energized by what Jesus has done for us and how his spirit will equip us for what lies ahead. And we are showing then the world the life with God. Glorious grace, beautiful creativity, and renewal wherever we are. The Levites worked for a purpose. Likewise, today, the products and services of all God's people are expressions of God's power at work in human beings, or at least they should be. The New Testament develops this theme from the Old Testament explicitly when Peter writes that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All the work we do is priestly work when it proclaims God's goodness. The items we produce, leather and cloth, dishes and plates, construction materials, lesson plans, financial forecasts, and all the rest are priestly items. The work we do, washing clothes, growing crops, raising children, and every other form of legitimate work is priestly service to God. 
And all of us are meant to ask, how does my work reflect the goodness of God? How does my work make him visible to those who do not recognize him and serve his purposes in the world? Because all believers, not just clergy or missionaries, are descendants of the priests and Levites that are in the book of Numbers doing God's work every day. So we labor for the, from the finished work of Jesus for his glory and for the good of the world. And it has to be who we are. It has to match our DNA. And just this morning, I thought how wonderful it is. We had a men's meeting last night. I asked the guys, what are our core values? And nobody got it. <laughs> but we are rescued. How do you spell rescued? By Jesus. We are reshaped into family. The pastor's wife got it right. And what for? For the renewal of others and all things. Used by God as he brings his grace to bear in the midst of our world. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What will you do for life with God Give him back his seat. Let God dwell on the throne of your life alone. Meet him, hear what he says of you in his word and in community, and find life in Jesus. It is what you were created for. And for the life of the church, the Hongs have become members of Reservoir Church. They're diving. I didn't have to preach this sermon. Row three, I see you. But dive in, like commit shoulder to shoulder, labor for each other and for all who may come. And if you feel inclined, start something in the church. We have a disability ministry because somebody wanted to start something that they were gifted with. And it's central to who we are. And the Lord has given you a vision of something. And now is the time to step into that vision. For the life of the world, friends, tomorrow wake up with new perspective. Give yourself permission to dream God-sized dreams of how he will use you for his glory and for the good of others. And I am going to be your biggest cheerleader. And in all of it, in life with God, in the life of the church, living for the life of the world, worship Jesus. Because friends, I have had a lot of jobs, lots of potential identities, varied vocations, but always one calling to be a worshiper of Jesus. Life surrendered to him, making him known above all things. And let me tell you, there is nothing sweeter. Shall we share him? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. Like we don't 
mean it tritely or lightly that we work, we labor from your finished work. It is all because of who you are and what you've done that we have life, that we have purpose, that we have good works that you have determined to be in our lives. So Lord, firstly, make us worshipers of you. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts that we would recognize the grace of Christ in profound ways that would transform how we live, what we um, value, what we prioritize, and who we love because you have loved us. Lord, I get a real sense that today some of us will get right in the life with God category, that we'll turn to you, that we will run to you again or maybe for the first time. In the same way in the life of the church that you'll stir something in us to serve one another. And in the life of the world, I believe there are some among us that you have planted a seed that is now breaking the soil and coming to life. Help us to spur one another on to those things that you've called us to. Help us to dream, to hear from you where we should move next. You would renew others in all things and we would worship you. Be glorified in us in Jesus' name. Amen.